My mother caught me. Caught you? Doing what? You know. I was alone. You mean? Uh -huh. She caught you? Where? I stopped by the house to drop the car off, and I went inside for a few minutes. Nobody was there. They're supposed to be working. My mother had a glamour magazine. I started leaving food. Glamour? <laughs> so one thing led to another. But I don't want to be a secondary character. Hello, Stephen. Hello, Ivan. Welcome to another episode of But I Don't Want to Be a Secondary Character. This is a Seinfeld podcast where we talk about the greatest sitcom of all time, but it's a bit different to your episode-by-episode episode review of that show. We actually get episodes in random order, and we talk about the secondary characters, the unsung heroes of that show. And uh, Stephen, we're doing our second-ever re-gift episode, so like a redo or a remaster or a remake, whatever re you want to call it. So we're doing our second one after the Soup Nazi for a Many, many months ago, we're going to do the contest again. Yeah, we originally did this for our 50th episode back in 2018. We did a live show here in Melbourne where we are based and uh, that went pretty well. And you can go back and listen to that in our feed. I think it is March 2018 from memory. It's about two and a half years ago. But uh, we are much better podcasters now. And this is considered the best episode of Seinfeld by many uh, individuals, fans, magazines, all sorts. So uh, we figured if we're going to do a re-gift, it may as well be the best. And also last week we did do The Virgin, which uh, is an episode that leads directly into this one. It's one of those unofficial double episodes uh, which there are a few yes there's many in uh, season four especially and uh, yeah no just echoing what you said Steve uh, as well yeah no, I mean we have been getting better with podcasting and there were some episodes where we thought that maybe because when we started this podcast you know we were still experimenting with stuff and now earlier episodes aren't as good you know as what they sound like now and uh, yeah we thought maybe we'll just redo or re-gift some of the older episodes that we probably didn't really feel were uh, that good or probably could have done better I mean our live episode was fantastic don't get me wrong and it still sounds pretty good but uh, no we thought because it is like literally the seminal episode of the show we wanted to kind of give it a second win a second contest if you will <laughs> i've already lost a hundred bucks i might lose another hundred <laughs> <laughs> yes. If you want to uh, get in contest with us and uh, lose to us, you can email us, bidwabuspodcast.gmail.com. You can say hello on social media. All those details are in the show notes. You can listen to all of our previous episodes on whatever podcast app you choose. And it would be really awesome if you want to rate us or review us. It really helps spread the word and uh, get some more eyes on the podcast and hence ears uh, with the podcast as well. Mm. And you can support us financially as well. Yes, you can support us with one-off donations on PayPal. Or if you want to give us a very, very low monthly subscription, about two US dollars a month plus taxes or thereabouts. You can sign up to Patreon, patreon.com forward slash B I D W B A S C, and you can listen to bonus podcasts, including Curbcast at season two and the newly released season three. So uh, by the time this episode comes out, we should have episode two, maybe three out. We've already got episode one, which was really fun. I, I really enjoyed recording that one the other day, Steve. And uh, you can also listen to our other podcast called Season 11, currently in hiatus, where we get random episodes 
or actually rather we come up with modern episodes of Seinfeld ourselves and that's what I meant sorry I'm used to doing the spiel for Bidwa Bask at the start of each episode and uh, yeah we come up with uh, brand new plots set in the modern era so that's currently in hiatus we've got six out of ten episodes in that series and uh, we're writing the other four to bring out later in the year so check that out that's right lots of other goodies and finally if you uh, want to join the biggest Seinfeld Facebook group called Seinfeldisms which we own and run uh, check it out Uh, we've got lots of cool things coming up we've got trivia which uh, is restarting after a couple of weeks off and uh, some other cool projects and uh, we've got a couple of really uh, really cool sponsors on board this month the first being Popchart who are a cool American company who make really really high quality and detailed posters about all sorts of things and uh, they've been kind enough to uh, allow us to offer a 20% discount code off their Seinfeld print it's $40 US so it isn't cheap but it is an amazing piece uh, and you can check that out and uh, we do have another cool sponsor that will I think be coming on board around October 15 so around when this episode comes out so check out Seinfeldisms for all those details indeed and speaking of Seinfeldisms like we normally do to kick off the show what Seinfeld related things have happened in your world buddy nothing nothing no, <laughs> nothing. Uh, there you go that's a Seinfeldism Seinfeld's a show yeah. about nothing and nothing's happened there you go you did it that's true even when nothing <laughs> happens it's a Seinfeldism what about you ah uh, well nothing as well unfortunately but you know like we keep mentioning this prolonged lockdown in Melbourne is really you know we're really clutching at straws with anything Seinfeld related in our lives it's pretty hard when you can only go out for exercise for two hours a day and you're at home for the other 22 so it's a bit hard to kind of get Seinfeldisms uh, at the moment so we do apologize for our slim pickings yeah it's so it's out of our control. I guess we could have had more thought, forethought last week and not masturbated for a week. Maybe we, even if we were on <laughs> Yeah. Stephen, those are my socks. <laughs> I just had to have them. I just went up and took them off your stinky feet because I had to have them. Oh, what are we doing? We're arguing. I'm sorry. You know. Yeah, we, we yeah. our own contest. Yeah, we could have. Okay. <laughs> our own emotional this. contest. Yeah, if we thought about doing this episode more than a week in advance, you know, we could have teed up a uh, a listener contest as well, and you know. Oh no. To uh, maintain the honor system, and you know, who knows. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe we can get 90,000 Seinfeldism fans to jump in. That'd be yeah, a big pot, 100 each. Well, we, oh, my yeah, Lord. We're about 93,000 members now in Seinfeldisms. Uh, we're getting pretty close to 100K. Maybe when we get to 100K, I'll announce a contest. <laughs> $100 each, 100K. Oh, my God. Uh, I'll be nearly as rich as Jerry Seinfeld. Holy shit, you're not quite. That's just, uh, you know, that's probably just per month what he earns. Yeah, that's true. That's true. <laughs> that amount of money. But yes, no, it'll be a big contest, big pot of money if we ever did. But no, I don't think that would work too well. I think it'd be too, to be honest, as much as I love the fans on the page, I think it'd just be a bit too dishonest at times. And also, if there's big money at stake. And, you know, even without the dishonesty, it's just weird. Having a, a virtual masturbation withholding competition is just a very strange thing to do with a bunch of strangers. Exactly. I mean, between close friends, like they attest to in the episode, it's all right. But, uh, yeah, not with strangers. No, maybe not. <laughs> uh, Seinfeld news. So uh, just one Seinfeld news piece this week. Jerry Seinfeld, uh, maybe a month or two ago, wrote an op-ed piece in the New York Times. Uh, that was in response to an essay that uh, I can't remember his name. Someone put out on LinkedIn, uh, basically calling New York City dead forever uh, in wake of the recent COVID-19 pandemic and uh, its rendering of the comedy scene and lots of other creative scenes dead. Um, you know, obviously no one went out, everyone was stuck at home, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, this essay was quite despairing and futile about New York's future as a culture and creative capital of not only America, but the world. Uh, Jerry read the essay or someone told him about it and uh, he sort of felt responsible to 
to, you know, to push back on the essay and the sentiment that it contains. So he wrote that New York op-ed piece. Uh, it got a bit of flack from the original essay writer as well as other people living in New York. Mm, yeah. Yeah, he did get called out of touch because he doesn't currently live in New York and he's nearly a billionaire. So you know, <laughs> these aren't really material concerns of his. And I'm, I'm sure he pushed back on that in some way as well. Bit of back and forth, bit of argy-bargy, it's to be expected. And in an interview that Jerry did through the week with American 60 Minutes, that topic was brought up because uh, obviously New York's still reeling like most of the world. Um, things are still quite iffy. No one really knows what's going to go on. Are things going to be open? You know, will they be closed, et cetera, et cetera. So it's quite topical. Uh, and in the interview, he, he basically defended his op-ed piece. He compared the rebuilding of New York's not only comedy scene, but various creative scenes. As when someone kicks over an anthill, he said, the ants don't complain. They accept that the anthill's been kicked over and uh, oh. they immediately get back to work and rebuild it dirt piece by dirt piece. Oh, my Lord. Okay. Yeah. Pretty controversial, that statement. Yeah. I, I think he was just trying to make the point that, you know, you can accept that things are bad and you can, you know, you can mourn the loss of what was, but the only people that are going to make it what it was or rebuild it in any way are those people who have a vested interest in it, whether it's financially or creatively or just fans of comedy. So it's okay to mourn, but you can't sit around complaining forever. You just have to do something, whatever that is. I think that was his point, and I don't think it's an entirely unreasonable point. It does reach a point where you sort of have to decide to stop wallowing and uh, just get on with it in whatever way you can. Fair enough. <laughs> yeah. Obviously, you know, there's a lot of things that are out of your control, but if everyone comes together and does whatever they can, even during a pandemic, I think, uh, you know, it's, it's a positive step forward. Absolutely. Yeah. He basically said as well that he, as a New Yorker, you know, he expects people to have a bit more grit, you know, and he said that he doesn't want New York, New Yorkism, as he called it, to die um, because he feels that, you know, being a New Yorker means that you're a bit of a badass, that you've got a bit of edge, that you've got a bit of grit, which, you know, goes along with the stereotype of New Yorkers being uh, sort of <laughs> pretty abrasive people. Yeah, yeah. And he sees that as a positive and he sees that as a quality that can help in that rebuilding process. Uh, they did touch on a few other things in the interview. It's worth a look if you just jump onto YouTube and type in Jerry Seinfeld 60 minutes. Uh, it goes for about 20, 25 minutes and uh, it's a pretty good uh, interview. Oh, he also talks about his book, which I believe came out this week. Today. Yes, I actually got charged because I pre-ordered the book. So I got charged today for it. So it should ship yeah. out. Probably should get it by the end of the week. Yeah. So uh, mm. next week, if you've got your hands on that book and you've read it, we'll, uh, we'll talk a bit about that. But for now, that is all the Seinfeld news for the week. Very good, Stephen. When we come back, we are regifting the contest. This is our second re-gift to you, and we are revisiting the secondary characters from that episode. I've got notes today on Marla, uh, as well as Joyce, the uh, gym lady, and uh, a couple of notes on Shelley, George's uh, cousin, who looks exactly like a female version of George, and uh, some notes on Estelle Costanza in her very first appearance on the show. What about you, mate? Yeah, I've got notes on all those characters, plus a couple on JFK Jr., even though he is unseen in this episode, or maybe you see a tiny bit of his body right at the end when he's with Mahler, I can't quite remember. Also, a couple of notes on the naked woman naked woman across the street, who's also another unseen character. And finally, the nurse that uh, leaves George very hot and bothered. Every time <laughs> very hot and bothered. In the uh, hospital. I saw the nurse. She was attractive. Had a look at the patient. <laughs> oh, my Lord. Anyway, yes, let's take a quick break and we'll revisit the contest. You're listening to, but I don't want to be a secondary character. The contest from Season 4, Episode 11, first aired in the US on November 18th, 1992. Directed by Tom Sharones and written by Larry David. After George's mother, Estelle, played by Estelle Harris, catches him alone in a somewhat embarrassing situation, Jerry, George, Elaine and Kramer stage a contest to see who can last the longest without any sexual gratification. 
Temptation quickly sets in for everyone. Kramer is the first to fall after ogling the woman across the street who walks around her apartment naked. I'm out, is the famous catch cry. <laughs> George is next after he visits his mother in hospital and her roommate gets a sponge bath across from the curtain separating them. Elaine signs up for a fitness class where none other than JFK Jr. is enrolled. Her fantasizing does the rest. <laughs> and finally, Jerry's new girlfriend Marla, played by Jane Leaves, decides it's time to lose her virginity but Jerry has to explain the contest. Other secondary characters include Alana Levine. She plays Joyce, the uh, receptionist at the gym. Rachel Sweet plays George's cousin Shelley. And Andre Parker, or Andrea Parker rather, plays the nurse who gives the sponge bath. Now, Stephen, plenty of trivia in for this episode, but I'll just give a couple. So Larry David, he actually won the Primetime Emmy Award for Outstanding Individual Achievement in Writing in a Comedy Series for his work. And the episode was ranked number one on TV Guide's 2009 list of the 100 greatest episodes of all time and i'd probably have to agree yeah i know that this is your favorite episode we've done so far um i rate it quite highly but uh, i don't think i like it as much as the general seinfeld audience but uh yeah any list that comes out you know best episodes of all time most classic episodes whatever this will usually appear at number one if not number two or three yeah i know i remember um when we did our 50th that uh you know you you ranked the contest a bit lower than me and everyone started booing you yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that was pretty rough. Yeah. Yep. Just uh, just being a contrarian. A contrarian. That's all right. But yes, a very famous episode and definitely one of the greatest of all time and one of the most popular. And what trivia do you have? Uh, so the uh, original episode um, has a couple of deleted scenes. So uh, there's one, no other details other than who's in the scene, but uh, Elaine is with uh, Jerry and Kramer, as well as Joyce. That's all the details that we have. But the second one sounds a bit more interesting. It features George and Estelle in the hospital, and it's uh, in a different hospital room to what we see in the episode uh, because Estelle has been moved to a different room after she actually complains about the constant nakedness of her roommate next to her getting sponge baths. So Estelle, as she demonstrates in this episode, is quite prudish, I think it's safe to say, mm. and very awkward around any form of sexuality, whether it's even if it's just nudity, uh, even in a hospital. Uh, and uh, she requests to be moved to a different room. And uh, I reckon that would have been a pretty funny conversation between George and Estelle, almost like an extension of the masturbation conversation where she's constantly trying to make him feel guilty and uh, make him see a psychiatrist. Yeah, it's very interesting now you mention it that they never actually wound up that storyline with the nurse and the patient. Uh, yeah, I, I, I'd imagine that Estelle probably would have cracked at seeing the nakedness and yeah, and then George, you know, George would probably be stuck and be like, oh, I want to go visit my mum, but I won't be able to go to see that patient either so what am i to do and then estelle would be like george you still have to come visit me and then george is kind of obliged to do it yeah i, I could see that if they kept that in yeah that'd be funny yeah no estelle's pretty sharp and then she's pretty perceptive and i i would assume that she's figured out you know if if she moved rooms and then all of a sudden george stopped seeing her uh, as often or he was trying to find excuses not to see her she would think what's changed like why why was he so keen and now he's not I think she would cotton on to the fact that the sponge baths occurring next door are no longer an option for George. So, uh, no. He has less of a reason or uh, less of a desire to see it. That's right. That's right. Um, just another couple of trivia facts that I have. Um, as it's probably well known, the word masturbation is never mentioned, even though it's the subject of the episode. The script did originally use the word, but Jerry and Larry realized that the episode would be funnier and less controversial without it. And uh, Larry David claims that if NBC had rejected the episode, that he would have quit the show entirely. So pretty 
pretty big call. Uh, and NBC only received 31 complaints from viewers in the original airing. Yeah, that does sound like a pretty low amount of complaints. I'm not too sure what they normally number in, but uh, yeah, not too many there. The final trivia point I had was that before the episode, Seinfeld had, uh, Jerry Seinfeld, that is, had never heard the song The Wheels on the Bus. Unbelievable. I mean, that's been a nursery rhyme that's been around for years. Yeah, it's universal. Yeah, and he's never, he claims he's never heard it. That's interesting. I thought everyone, I thought every kid would have heard it. Yeah, uh, and especially, I think it's an American nursery rhyme. So the fact that, uh, you know, Jerry being an American hadn't heard it is, is strange. When I watched the episode after learning that, I listened carefully to how Jerry sings it. And he sings it fairly accurately, but the melody is actually a tiny bit off. He emphasizes some words a bit differently. And there are some notes that are very slightly off. So, you know, I imagine he would have had to listen to it a few times and get it in his head before he sung it. But uh, you can, yeah. it does sound like someone who's just heard it for the first time. Yeah, that's true. I mean, obviously back then they didn't have the luxury of, you know, going on YouTube and hearing what the song sounds like. So Jerry probably got one or two, you know, recordings and he listened to them and then uh, he probably went through it for the scene. Yeah, it, it just, Makes you could just tell it wasn't ingrained in him like it would be. No. You know, it would have been part of their childhood. It was, he was a uh, wheels on the bus virgin. And then Kramer, you know, looks at the woman across the road and says, the woman across the street has nothing on nothing on and his melody is a bit off as well to the um key (laughs) (laughs) and uh, speaking of kramer the i'm out of the contest moment the one of the most famous moments on the show that's his 100th entry into jerry's apartment on the show what a way to celebrate his 100th i know (laughs) that's like a test cricket batting century yeah that's you know it's iconic winning run (laughs) that's it anyway mate shall we just jump into these secondary characters and talk about them sounds good all right, let's start off with Marla because we talked about her last week in The Virgin. So uh, like I said last week, I did mention her acting credits and stuff, so I won't mention them this week, but just played uh, by Jane Leaves, a British actress, uh, most famous for playing Daphne in Frasier. So from last week, Steve, uh, Marla, you know, she was a wardrobe designer and we hypothesized that her boyfriend may have uh, deserted her or maybe, uh, you know, went on a sabbatical to Germany and then never came back and found another lover. And uh, we also hypothesized that Jane is probably has a fear of abandonment abandonment. She's probably had abandonment issues uh, from her family and um, her previous boyfriends and her virginity is probably a deterrent for, uh, you know, future suitors. <laughs> so, But uh, in this episode, right at the end, she feels that Jerry is the one who may take her virginity. Yeah, I think I said last week that uh, I sensed a tiny shift in Jane throughout that episode where I think up until a certain point she really really valued her virginity and she only wanted to give it away to someone special but after talking with Elaine maybe and it sort of demystified or uh, de-romanticized sex for her and she realized that you know maybe it's not as special uh, as what she thought it was in her head and that you know men can just be jerks especially after they've had sex you can, mm. you can tell that subtly she's like you know what I'm not going to be so romantic about it and uh, have such great expectations on it I'm just going to pick someone who's at least half decent and you know jerry is okay at the time and i'm just going to go through with it obviously she waits a bit longer which we see in this episode but yeah the start of last week's episode she was very you know it was a very emotional process for her uh, and the idea of losing her virginity to someone uh special was very very important to her but uh that importance has lessened uh, and you know she's accepted that jerry will be the one and you know until jerry puts his foot in it and talks about the contest uh, (laughs) off screen which is very clever yeah he was almost going to be the cherry popper (laughs) the cherry popper yeah because now you make a really good point because in the virgin elaine basically devalues the whole concept of sex even virginity to a degree as well so you're right i think i think that is what changed marla and what turned her and yeah i think you're right i think she was pretty keen and just like you said i mean i can't 
any more than that. She just basically said, I'll just go with the next guy that I'm with, Jerry, and uh, and let's do it. Yeah, I, look, I don't think Elaine's talk to her like completely makes her cynical, you know, and, and takes away everything that she held on to. It just takes away a lot of it. There's still enough there that she, you know, she still makes Jerry wait a couple of more weeks or however long has passed. But uh, yeah, it definitely, it definitely took a lot away, just not everything. Yeah, for sure. And uh, like I mentioned last week, she loses her virginity to, wow, a real, uh, real stud, <laughs> JFK Jr. They actually, uh, they do it because JFK Jr. felt sorry for Marla because uh, George recounts that Marla's <laughs> near the cab and she's crying and JFK Jr. probably feels sorry for her and takes her in. Yeah. And um, I think at this point, you know, she, she's obviously very uh, upset about the idea of a contest. She, I think she calls Jerry and maybe the rest of them sick. Uh, she's very, very upset with Elaine when Elaine sees her on the street. She's like, I don't want to see any of you. I don't want anything to do with you. You're all sick or something like that. She's she's just really upset and really turned off by even the idea mm. of a contest. She thinks it's yeah. depraved. And I mean, it is kind of weird, but I do agree <laughs> with Elaine when she's like, you know, she's a wacko. You know, I think it is a bit of an overreaction, but it makes sense given her naivety and her emotional complications around the idea of sex and abandonment. It's, you know, it, it does make sense in her context. But when she gets picked up by JFK Jr., all we know is that she was crying, obviously upset by uh, what just happened with Jerry or what didn't happen, depending on how you want to look at it. <laughs> depending on how you look at it or yeah, what could have and, happened. Yeah. And JFK Jr., he's sort of painted to be this like honorable, decent man who approaches her and asks her if she's okay and consoles her and probably says, you know, would you like to come and I don't think he thought, well, here's a here's a woman who, you know, I can have sex with. I think he just no. offered her a friendly, you know, shoulder to cry on and ear to to speak to. And, you know, somehow, I'm guessing through her vulnerability and JFK being JFK Jr., handsome, rich, intelligent, sensitive. And I think Marla was just, it was almost like a, in a way, maybe for her, because I have talked to people who've done this where they've been hurt and then they go and do something almost as like a an indirect revenge. Mm, Even though Jerry yeah. had no idea that she slept with JFK Jr. when it happened, you know, he may have found out later through the grapevine or something. I think for her it was, well, I've been turned off and disgusted by Jerry, so I'm going to fuck someone else as, mm. a, as a form of like, not revenge, but just to sort of like take some of her power back. Well, actually, I kind of disagree with that. I feel like with Marla that maybe like because JFK, you know, JFK Jr., like you said, he's perceived to be a decent guy. I feel like that JFK and Marla, like Marla got brought in by him and I reckon maybe they went to dinner and, you know, I think she probably confided in him. And I feel like maybe she wasn't really expecting to make love to JFK Jr. And, and I think they made love. They didn't like, you know, fuck, have sex. I feel like maybe all this stuff leading up to it, they probably had some drinks and, you know, they talked about their lives and JFK probably talked about his life with having like a father who was killed you know as president and you know maybe they consoled in each other and then they I think maybe Marla and them and JFK just had like a moment and, and they got together I, I don't think Marla in my opinion I don't think Marla actually went out to kind of seek like semi-revenge I think it just happened you know, through the night yeah no no I, I don't mean that she decided before it happened that this is a form of revenge but when the opportunity presented herself, look, even if it wasn't like fully predetermined revenge or I need to go do something, mm. it was maybe that occurred to her that like this is a form of revenge. But yeah, I, I do agree with mm. you in that it wasn't a like a hate fuck or anything sort of, Yeah, you know, it, it was still came across, I'm sure, as like very romantic and, you know, loving and, you know, they were emotionally connected. There was something there. It wasn't nothing. But, you know, I think it was a mix, you know, for Marla. Again, you know, sex for her is an emotional thing. It's a special thing. It's not mm. something you just throw away. And, no. uh, you know, but the fact that it happened the night 
of her walking out on Jerry is even with JFK Jr. and his sensitivity and his decency, I still think under any other circumstances, if she met him, you know, if she just met him out of the blue and didn't know Jerry, uh, she probably would have waited even with him. So even with him. Yeah. Yeah. I think I think it's probably a mix of the two. And Marla and JFK's relationship goes all the way to the season four finale. So, you know, there's the shot of uh, of the montage of all the season four characters watching Jerry, the pilot, and uh, Marla's there with JFK. So, yeah, they've still been going along. So obviously they have a very emotional connection and probably they probably have a lot in common. Like it, it goes back to our theory last week of maybe Marla's father abandoning the family, which established her abandonment issues. So maybe her father not being there and JFK Jr.'s father not being there because he was killed. Maybe they had something in common and they really resonated with each other. Yeah, no, I think they found comfort in each other through their shared pain, even though their experiences were very different, carrying a lot of emotional pain yeah. when you share when you share that pain. Um, I think as well, JFK Jr., you know, we may as well talk. I, I don't have anything else about Marla, do you? Well, Marla was more prominent, obviously, in, in her episode, The Virgin, from last week. But now she's not really in this episode too much. She was kind of shoehorned in to try and get written out of the show, I think. They tried to find a way to do it. So, yeah, I, th- I feel like this episode, she was just in just to kind of get written out. So, um, yeah. no, I don't really have anything else more to say about her. I think we, like, if you want to find out more about her in the context of last week's episode, you can uh, listen to that one. Yeah, that's right. We do go more in depth about who she is and her history and mm. why she why she is who she is. Uh, that's right. Yeah, but I figured we may as well talk about JFK Jr. next. Um, I'm not too sure if you had any notes. Uh, he's not seen in this, but uh, you do learn a lot about him and you can infer a lot by by what he does off screen in this episode. I think that he, the first thought that comes to mind, and it didn't occur to me until now, is that I think he's on the search for maybe a life partner or something more substantial. You know, he shows interest in Elaine and he, you know, he asks Joyce about her and mm. uh, whether she's single. So I think he's actually trying to find someone to connect with. And maybe he sensed that with Elaine. Maybe he thought this is a woman I'd love to get to know. And, uh, you know, maybe I could have a relationship with her. Obviously, Marla, you know, I mean, JFK Jr. sort of indirectly dumps Elaine, I guess, or replaces Elaine with Marla. Oh, replaces inadvertently. Yeah, yeah I guess yeah. you could say. Yeah. yeah. But I, I just get the sense that maybe he's on the search for, because he died in 1995, I think, or 1996, and he was about... I think it was later than that. I think it was like 97, 98. I'll find out when he died, yeah. yeah it, was, um, it was the mid to maybe early, late 90s, but he... 1999, 16th of July. Was it 99? Okay. Well, he was 38 yep. when he died. And I don't think that he had any kids at this point in his life. So he would have been about 31, 32, which is around the age that, you know, a lot of people, if they aren't already married or have kids, want to meet someone to start a family with. And I think he was in that frame of mind and, you know, he, he didn't plan to meet Marla, but like we said before, they connected and, uh, you know, even till the end mm. of this season, they're still in a relationship and presumably uh, they're in a relationship after that, maybe even till the finale when you when you see Marla again, when she comes back. Yeah, I think she was just he was just searching for someone to, you know, to be yeah. his life partner and presuming mm. he found that in Marla. Very true. Well, actually, I'm looking at um, JFK's relationships and he was actually married to Carolyn Bassett Kennedy from 1996 to 1999. And she actually died in the plane with JFK as well. So, yeah, I think maybe um, if we can go by like real life situations. So this episode came out in 92. So maybe Marla and JFK were together. Maybe they were together for a few years before he met Carolyn. You know, maybe, you know, her and Marla kind of got disconnected somewhat. And then, you know, JFK was trying to maybe look for something more. He's always looking for something, you know, he's always looking for something enriching and wholesome in his life and uh, he broke up with Marla and got with her uh, <laughs> now deceased wife as well. Let me throw this at you. I'm going to say yeah. between the end of season four and when JFK Jr. married his, sorry, who's his wife in real life? 
Carolyn Bissett Kennedy, she also passed away in the plane crash too in 99. Sometime between the end of 92, start of 93, and when he married Carolyn in 96, I'm going to say that Marla left JFK Jr. And the reason I say that is because yep. she's quite introverted. She's quite shy. She's a bit timid. And being you know a high-profile girlfriend or wife for someone like JFK Jr., because he was a high-profile person, not just for being JFK's son, but he had his own established career as, a, uh, I think, an assistant district attorney in New York. You know, he was extremely famous. And I think for someone like Marla, being in the public eye like that and being attached to someone famous would be enough to realize that she just doesn't want that life. So I'm going to say because she's who she is and she foresaw that the longer she stayed with JFK, the more that she would be, you know, maybe under public scrutiny, she would be written about yes. gossip mags, all that sort of stuff. You know, because JFK Jr. from when he was a kid until he was an adult, his life was the, and, and the Kennedys in general, you know, they were like the, the royals in, in British tabloid culture. They were just mined for material and a lot of slander was spread about them. And they were just, they were just that yeah. family in America. And I think Marlon mm. realized, I don't want that. It's not who I am. Maybe she left me. Yeah, maybe, yeah, she couldn't handle the pressure. And yeah, you're right. Maybe there were some tabloid articles even about her. Yeah. Like maybe something came out saying JFK breaks the cherry of his, you know, of Marla. You know what I mean? I no, I'm serious. Maybe it's probably something like that. No, that uh, she lost her virginity to him. But just even photos, you know, if they were out at a public event of like, who's this English person and, you know, any sort of slander. Oh, well, you never know. Like maybe, maybe she confided in like a friend and then the friend went to one of the newspapers and, you know, sold got offered money, you know, sold the yeah. story. Yeah, it could have been some situation like that. Yeah. But- Whatever may have happened, I would assume that Marla left him because of the pressure that was already there being a girlfriend of his. And then that the, the idea of that pressure only becoming more and more and more constant as they get yeah. into serious. And then eventually marrying. And then even thinking, well, if I marry this man and have kids with him, my kids are going to be subject to that. It's I can understand why that people would just go, you know what? I'm going to bail now before it gets to that point because that would be a hard Yeah. Life. And also just adding to that, I'm pretty sure I've read that JFK Jr., he was, I think they were planning for him or they, they were planning for him to become president or at least run as a presidential candidate when he was a bit older. So I think if he were still alive today and Marla was, you know, say his wife, I think the pressure like of trying to be president and going through like a rigorous campaign where everyone's talking negative about you and mud's getting thrown either side as we've seen, you know, recently with the current uh, presidential election in the US. I feel like maybe, yeah, Marla probably decided, you know what, this guy has so such big aspirations and he's just starting to become up or get bigger than he actually is. And um, I, I don't feel comfortable you know, being in the limelight. So yeah, yeah, lucky she pulled out when she did. Mm, I think so. You know, and then I'm sure JFK Jr. was hurt because uh, they obviously shared something special, not only on the night that they met, but uh, afterwards. But, you know, he eventually got over it and uh, he met, uh, again, I can't remember her name. Carolyn Bissett Kennedy. Carolyn. <laughs> so, yeah. Obviously- he uh, obviously moved on. Yeah, that's that's all I really had about him. Obviously, he likes aerobics as well. He's keen on Elaine. Um, I'm guessing he has a bit of a type like Elaine and Marla, br- Marla brunettes. Love love the brunettes. Probably. Yeah, Marla's got sort of like yeah. a reddish brown hair, but uh, mm. you know, they're, they're similar, I guess, body types. You know, mm-hmm. they've both got, you know, they're sort of Caucasian women, both quite attractive. So obviously he's got a type. Yeah. And that's all I really know and uh, have about JFK Jr. Well, just one thing before we move on to the next character. I find it interesting how someone like JFK Jr. who could afford to be in like a, a really high class exclusive, you know, fitness or wellness center or, you know, gym or whatever they are. She goes to one which seems to be like a normal public gym, unless if that's a really expensive place to go. I don't know. Maybe. Found that interesting. Yeah, no, you're right. I mean, he could have his own personal trainer. He could even have his own like fully decked out gym at home and just use it privately. But I don't know, maybe, you know, I have heard anecdotes over the years of famous people trying to do normal everyday things that normal everyday people do just to sort of. Yeah, like go grocery shopping and stuff. 
you know, and yeah, maybe, yeah. maybe he, you know, maybe for him that was his way of doing that. You know, maybe he thought, well, you know, my life is very different to other people just by the virtue or the, the curse, depending on which way you look, look at it, of who I am. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, I can still do some simple things to feel grounded and feel connected and feel not so JFK Jr.-ish. Because I'm sure being the son of JFK, even if he, you know, sought a much more private life, there'd just be this expectation around you because you are the son of mm. the most famous, you know, president of the of the 20th century, you know, not only for being assassinated, for who he was as president. So I can understand why JFK Jr. would maybe want to do some everyday things to just sort of feel a bit more normal. Yeah. Oh, well, well rest in peace, man. Yeah. Sad that he died, you know, seven years later after this episode came out. Yeah, I, I, I read a tiny bit about JFK Jr. just to get a brief idea of who he was. Um, you know, I knew bits and pieces, not only from Seinfeld, but just from, you know, hearing bits and pieces throughout my life. And, you know, I, and then I read the Jackie Onassis uh, Wikipedia article, and obviously everyone knows about JFK and RFK. And it's just such a tragic, I, I don't know, it's like a dichotomy because the family is considered, you know, one of the uh, cornerstones of American elite families. You know, they're, they're, mm. they're a dynasty, they're royalty, really. Yeah. Yeah, for so yeah. many reasons, but it's just so filled with tragedy. There's just so much young death. They call it the Kennedy curse. Yeah, the Kennedy curse. Well, there you go. I didn't even know mm. that that was a thing, but that makes sense. Yeah, no, it makes sense. I mean, if you were part of the Kennedy family, something could happen. Yeah, I mean, even Jackie Onassis died at 64 from, I think, cancer, or maybe. Mm, I think I think it was something like that. I know. Tragic family. Yeah, very tragic. But anyway, let's move on. I guess we can stick to the gym theme, Steve. We can talk about Joyce, the uh, receptionist at the gym. Yeah, for sure. Joyce was played by Alana Levine. She's known for Friends with Kids and Failure to Launch. And uh, yes, with Joyce, yeah, she's the receptionist at the gym. She's very aware, I think, as well. Obviously, she sees so many people coming in, so many clients. She knows who is who. And um, she's able to pull some strings, especially for Elaine. Yeah, I think um, as the receptionist at the gym, she, you know, like, to be a bit of a matchmaker, keep an eye on things, keep tabs on people. And uh, she's obviously got the hots for JFK Jr. And uh, the fact that she doesn't go try and make a move herself, or we're assuming she hasn't tried to make a move herself, and is happy to, uh, you know, put in a good word for Elaine and also give Elaine the heads up that JFK Jr. is in the class is, you know, to me, the sign of a good friend. I think she's probably already married, you know, maybe in a relationship. So obviously, you know, being with like her husband or her fiance or partner or whatever, she probably just admires JFK and likes the look of him, but she prefers to window shop, which is uh, very admirable. She could have easily tried to have an affair, but uh, she's a really honest person and honorable, and she probably doesn't want to cause any issues because she works at the gym. So she probably doesn't like to have, you know, mixed business with pleasure, so to speak. No. And, you know, maybe she doesn't want that JFK junior life either. Uh, But she- (laughs) Maybe not. She certainly does admire his butt. Oh, certainly. And I'm sure he would have had a really chiseled butt. Yeah. He's a very handsome (laughs) man. He was a very handsome man. So- He was. For Elaine, she, um, she kind of reminds me, I'm blanking on names today. I can't remember. The, the, you gotta see the baby. You gotta see the baby. Oh, jeez, I, I forgot. Oh, I, I'm, I'm blanking on that one too. But yeah, yeah. that couple. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah from earlier, uh, yes. She kind of reminds me of her in a way, in that she's uh, a bit whiny, very New Yorky. Yeah, maybe a bit not simple, but just not as um, sophisticated as Elaine. You know, a bit more. I vaguely remember that when we did our 50th episode. I vaguely remember we mentioned she might have been like Brooklyn born and bred or something. You know, maybe like Italian American. You know, with with that kind of voice. Yeah, I, I think she's one of uh, Elaine's friends that she met after she moved to New York. You know, she's got some friends from uh, Baltimore, but uh, Mm -hmm. obviously a uh, New York friend. And enemies like Sue Ellen. Yeah, 
Exactly. <laughs> from Baltimore, yes. <laughs> but yeah, no, actually with Joyce, I forgot to mention it was a trivia fact. Joyce is actually in the opening scene where the four are talking about the contest and trying to come up with it. Um, You can see Joyce in the background at Monk's and she notices Elaine and her friends and uh, she looks at them and walks off. It's very brief. If you like, if you go back and watch the first scene, you can see the actress. Oh, okay. I'll, uh, I'll yeah. do, uh, make note of that next time I watch it. So I watched this episode <laughs> three times today. So if I don't see it for a while, I'll, uh, that's okay, but uh, I'll have to try and remember that next time. No, nah, all good, all good. But yeah, I, I don't really have anything else about Joyce. Uh, I, like I said, I think, like to summarize, I think she doesn't want to mix business with pleasure. Uh, she's already in a relationship, so she doesn't want to, you know, mess that up and, and get with JFK Jr. Despite him being a rich, famous, handsome guy. Uh, and yeah, she's just um, she's a good friend to Elaine. And I think you're right. I think Elaine and Joyce already knew each other well before this. They're already kind of yeah, probably not really close friends, but you know, kind of like not quite friends, but like really good acquaintances. That kind of level. Yeah, I would assume that maybe. Elaine met Joyce at the gym like maybe Elaine was a member yeah that's uh, it know, yep they just got chatting and they just got along and they decided to you know maybe that one day they decided to go, to go get a, a drink or a coffee or something after after uh, Joyce had finished at the gym and uh yeah I, I think they're you know not close friends but uh you know somewhere between acquaintances or friends yeah that's that's what I was thinking and yeah she was trying to put in a good word for Elaine yeah look out for mm-hmm. yeah that's maybe, it yeah maybe, good mate maybe. a wing a wing woman yeah exactly maybe she mm-hmm. um like she seems to be really like keen on setting up Elaine or somehow getting them together so maybe Elaine yeah uh, before uh, JFK jr had turned up that uh, you know maybe Elaine had just offhandedly said oh I find that JFK jr really really hot and you know lo and behold a little while later he turns up to the gym and Joyce is like oh I've got mm-hmm. to try and you know yeah. get Elaine in on this somehow well Elaine has mentioned in earlier episodes to the contest that her obsession with JFK jr so I, I don't know maybe yeah maybe she just talked about it several times saying oh I wish I could meet JFK jr or you know have fantasies you know maybe you know they have chats about it and then suddenly yeah I, I think you're right I think Joyce you know saw JFK jr come in he, you know he wanted to be an everyman being in the gym with everyone else and she's like oh my god and then maybe they they got talking and then she goes oh i know a friend who really admires you and uh, you know likes you and maybe uh you two might get along and that's it yep she's a matchmaker <laughs> she, is. she is yes all right uh let's talk about uh shelly george's cousin <laughs> female george that's what i describe her as <laughs> she's got the same like whiny voice and everything <laughs> so good very well done uh she's played by producer musician and writer rachel sweet uh, she's produced and written for tv shows including two broke girls hot in cleveland the naked truth and dharma and greg as a musician she started as a country singer in the 1970s before signing a record deal in the 80s uh, where she moved more into the pop realm rather than country bit of like a taylor swift evolution of her music yeah. um she has released several records over her career and she's also contributed to the soundtracks for films such as hot shots one of your favorites tank girl and the 1988 version of hairspray so uh like i mentioned steve uh, she, i just feel like she's she can definitely tell she's a relative of george's like she's got the same whiny voice except obviously you know more feminine uh she wears glasses and uh yeah she's just uh really i think unlike george i, I think she's more grounded in her um you know career and you know her relationships and stuff uh, unlike george who, like i mentioned is very neurotic yeah I, I would agree with all that she uh she has a similar stature to george as well george is a bit shorter than the normal man and uh mm. shelly is around the same height maybe a bit 
shorter. And uh, mm-hmm. she she kind of hints that the rest of the family see George as a bit of a joke or maybe a bit of a disappointment. Oh, yes. P- perfectly understandable. She does say, even though George doesn't hear it, uh, she does say that uh, she's happy that George is working as a writer because they thought, they being the whole family, including her, thought that he would end up on the street. That's right, yeah. So they had no aspirations for him at all and they know that he's a loser. Well, they probably have aspirations for him, but they just have no faith that he'll be able to <laughs> meet those aspirations. Faith, yes. Meet those, yeah, no, no, he doesn't have the faith to, to do it, yeah. I um, remember in our 50th episode, we talked about what she may have done as an occupation and I think you might have mentioned that she was like a designer or she worked in design of some sort, like graphic design or maybe she was an artist or something. She did like performance art or visual arts or, or something of that nature i think i do recall you mentioning something like that do you you think that still holds up in your theory about about her uh i can't remember why i would have thought that but uh, i can't see any reason why i I wouldn't not think that now i think by her looks i think because you know she looked very artsy yeah okay she kind of had a bit of a uh, a, a proto hipster vibe, you know. She looked like a bit <laughs> proto hipster. That's it. Yeah, probably the glasses and and her style of clothing. Yeah, I can. she definitely looks like someone who lives in Fitzroy or something. Yeah, yeah, that's it. <laughs> Yeah. But yeah, I mean, we only see her in one scene and she never appears again. But uh, it's good that we see more uh, of George's family, even though we don't see too many of his family members in the show. Yeah. And it's just, yeah, I like I, I like how she's portrayed. I like how she's like a female George. You know, even though he does, she doesn't have the loser attitude or the loser mindset of George. Uh, and, you know, she probably has a bigger drive and determination than he. Uh, I just love physically and, you know, she sounds like him. I think it's great. I think it's really, really good how they did that. Yeah, it's um, it's not so, you know, it's not, he's not, she's not like a total female version of George's to be like, you know, like a, a cheap joke or there's enough differences in who they are that, you know, that they're different people. But uh, there's enough, there's enough commonality that you're like, oh, yeah, that's definitely George's cousin. Yeah. And they're obviously not really close either because you know even she finds out about George's writing and you know she probably would have asked how this the writing going anyway so I think maybe because um she turns up to see Estelle I feel like Estelle and Shelley are close I feel like maybe Estelle probably wishes that Shelley was her daughter and then George was like you know her nephew or something like it's what parents um I feel like Estelle is probably really proud of Shelley and what she's done and you know because they sometimes wish that you know George could be more like Lloyd Braun you know his childhood friend and I feel like because they really miss any aspirational faith that their child should have and they feel like George can't do it. So they wish that they had a childhood succeed. And I think they kind of, I think Estelle and maybe Frank, I'm not too sure, but I think with Estelle, she kind of uh, sees Shelley as kind of like a daughter in a way. Yeah, the daughter that she wish she had. It's funny you talk about, um, you know, how, how Estelle would view uh, George is a disappointment uh, because of his constant underachievement. You know, his constant underachievement is probably at least partially a direct result of that lack of faith in him. So it's a bit of a catch-22 where, you know, he he always feels, uh, you know, he, he's a pathological liar. You know, he's, he's not very good at many things. He kind of cheats his way to success. And that that total uh, maladjustment, you know, is as a result from how dysfunctional they are as parents. But they're angry at him because he is maladjusted. So it's it's like, you know, I eat because I'm depressed and I'm depressed because I eat. It's this because I eat, yeah, it's, it's, it's a suspicious just... cycle that, uh, yeah. you know, neither one of them is aware of or is willing to break. No, and they just, you know, they stick with the... Uh... Um, the melancholy yeah you know the you know they're constantly angry and frustrated with george and george doesn't like them and it's just brand around the coast <laughs> and the, look how george grew up <laughs> yeah exactly 
Yeah, so, that's it. Yeah. Who should we talk about next, my friend? Should we just talk about Estelle? Might as well finish off the Costanza family before we move yeah, on. Yeah, it's, it's worth – we've talked about her at length. Uh, she does have her – well, she's part of a What's the Deal with episode way back in Season 1 when we had seasons in this podcast. Our second What's the Deal episode, I believe it was Episode 10, What's the Deal with Seinfeld Parents. So we do talk about her at length in that episode, and we've every episode she's appeared in since then, uh, we've talked about her. But I feel like it's worth talking about her in this episode uh, because it is her first appearance. That's it, yes, and she is played by the wonderful Estelle Harris. And uh, yes, this is her first appearance on the show. We do see Frank Costanza in late season four in the handicap spot, but uh, he's played by another actor. Um, so this is the first time we see Estelle. She's not actually in season four. Like You'd think that she was in the handicap spot, but she's not. Um, yeah. So we see uh, George's mum for the very first time and we kind of see her emotions and her uh, neuroticism, uh, you know, the very early throes of it. Yeah, she's is the only Seinfeld parent in the first episode that they appear in where from the very first scene she's in, she's in uh, her full Estelle Costanza form. Mm. You know, even in, even in uh, season, I think it's in the stock tip maybe? No, sorry. In season day, two. Yeah. Sorry. Oh, day, yeah, yeah. When Helen and the original Morty, I can't remember who played him for Barney Martin, but you could see hints of who they were to become, but, you know, they were still being fleshed out as characters. And even Frank Costanza in the... Uh, the, the, the handicap spot. spot. You know, like yeah. he's, he's Frank Costanza-ish, but he's not in his full glorious form. But from scene one, uh, Estelle is who she will be for the rest of the series. So I think by this stage, halfway through season four, they were really confident. They're like, this is who she is. And, uh, you know, we're not going to sort of like build her up to be someone. We're just going to hit the ground running and i think uh, uh -huh. yeah she's she's on fire from the very first word that comes out of her mouth absolutely is a terrific performance by estelle and a great introduction to her character and uh, yeah her neuroticism and her anger everything just amplifies when frank's in the same room exactly uh or in this case george <laughs> the, george in this case yes <laughs> yeah the, i i was i don't think it's come up uh in future episodes it, maybe it has in some way but i just can't remember uh but she is very 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 disturbed by even the thought of George masturbating. You know, fair enough, she is very upset that she caught him. No, I don't think any mother or any parent would want to catch their child or vice versa. You know, I mm. can understand why she's very embarrassed and uh, she's just a bit flustered and upset. But uh, the fact that she insists that he sees a psychiatrist no. <laughs> for masturbating. Yeah, he's yeah. like, well, I don't know. There's obviously some uh, dysfunctionality when it comes to sex and sexuality and seeing her son, even in some way, even in an abstract way as a sexual person, um, the fact that she thinks it's depraved and sick tells me a lot about who she is and maybe her upbringing and yeah. her you know, her attitude and her emotional despondency to sex. To sex, yeah. And also, like, just, just going off that as well, I think she's very filthy that George couldn't help her when she fell on her back, you know, in, in the bathroom. And, you know, even <laughs> George says, I couldn't go in the way that I was, you know, with his, I'm guessing with his dick in one hand and the Glamour magazine in the other, yeah. you know, he couldn't really do much in that position. With his pants down, he couldn't really just, yeah, I zipped up. Yeah, so his pants, you know, his pants were down or his zip was down. And, you know, he was in a very compromising position, so he couldn't do much. But I think Estelle was probably saying, why didn't she help me? <laughs> you know, you just left me there. She yeah. couldn't understand the situation. And you really, um, again, just touching on the fact that uh, as soon as Estelle comes into this episode, she is in her full form. Uh, mm -hmm. George, I can understand, you know, it does give you a, every time you see Estelle and George interact, you can, it shines a bit of light on who George is and why he is the way he is. And the fact that uh, Estelle is very almost like bipolar in a way, not, not clinically bipolar, but her mood goes from 
this like anger to quite warm. Um, you know, when 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 George comes to visit her and she's really touched by the fact that she's come that he's come, you know, for a second day in a row and George is quite affectionate with her and he's like, Why wouldn't I come and see my mother? You know, you're in the hospital and she seems quite touched and warm by it. And she's very warm to George. And then as yeah. she says, I'm not gonna get you a sandwich straight away, she's like, piss off then, leave. Like she just goes from one extreme she to turns, the other. Yeah. Yeah. As a son, if I had someone in my life, my mother or whoever, who was like that all the time, that would be very confusing and distressing because you go, well, who is this person? How is she going to act? You'd have to tiptoe around everything. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and that just escalates throughout the series. You know, Estelle becomes more and more <laughs> going from one extreme to the other. But uh, you, mm. you can understand why George is the way he is, partially at least. Uh, the way he is, yeah. And then because you do see, like, you can see that Estelle still cares about George in a way, like, yeah. because he's her son. But I think she's just so disappointed in him. And, you know, she's so neurotic that the only way to really express her emotions is to, like, badmouth her son, <laughs> get angry at her son, shame her son. So there's different ways to express her emotion. But I think underneath, she's still really loves him yeah and and like i said before you know it's a bit of a vicious cycle because estelle sees maybe herself being angry and frustrated and, and treating george like crap sometimes as warranted because he is a disappointment but him her treating him like that just makes him more like who he is so it's you know and she's not aware enough or self-aware enough to go well hang on maybe i should act differently and maybe george will change as well mm. she's unaware that she's both the cause and the symptom of george of george yes and uh, we see her all the way to the finale i think she's in like 30 something episodes yes. i didn't count how many but she's in quite a few so yeah we see her more often uh, and i think from here on in every episode she's in i'm going to say that frank is probably in every episode with her or not always together because there is a period where they are separated but uh, i mm-hmm. don't think she ever appears in another episode just on her own after this one don't believe so no i think this is probably the first and last one but uh, what a way to get into to the Seinfeld universe. What a way to introduce a character. I know. Perfect. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm Perfect. glad they, uh, you know, they had enough confidence to go, you know what, this is who she is. We're not going to sort of like play around with her in the first episode to figure out what works and then build up to more of an Estelle that we're like, no, we mm-hmm. understand who she is and we're going to hit the ground running. Yeah. And by this stage, you know, if you're writing script, if you're pumping out scripts like Contest and getting them greenlit, you know, you'd feel so confident, you know, not just Jerry and, and uh, Larry, but all the writers, you'd just be like, you know, we, you'd be so confident in your abilities that you would, the ca- new characters you're introducing at this stage, it makes sense that they're, you know, that they are who they are from the first scene. Yeah. And Estelle Harris was really well cast because, you know, despite, you know, even though with her excellent audition, she actually looks a lot like uh, Jason Alexander's late mother. So uh, yeah, the, uh, they thought that maybe that's another reason why she got the role as well. So the chemistry would really flow between them, which it does. Yeah. No, amazing. Amazing. <laughs> While we're uh, still at the hospital, why don't we talk about, if you have any notes on her, uh, the nurse who gives the sponge baths? Yeah, sure. I mean, I don't have too much on her, but uh, she's played by Anne. Andrea Parker. She's known for the TV shows The Pretender, Pretty Little Liars, and Jag. And uh, I mean, and the nurse, obviously very attractive woman, <laughs> you know, very attractive nurse. And she's in like that old style nurse uniform, which I find really interesting. Mm. I feel like it's probably an allusion to like maybe porn because, you know, there's those pornos that are out where, you know, like the nurses wear like the old style uniforms and stuff. I think, you know, in the reference to like masturbation, sex, that sort of thing, I think it's kind of like a subtle dig at like porn, like softcore or hardcore or something like that which probably explains the outfit because she's not in her normal like nurse's scrubs she's in something a bit more sensual which i find really interesting which kind of adds to the dynamic yeah i think they're playing on that uh trope that you know certain jobs performed by women or women in certain jobs uh, are automatically sexualized and uh pornified 
you know, nurses, yeah. flight, flight stewardesses, you know, female cops. And it's probably the uniform. Maybe it's also the caretaker role. Uh, but there are certain job roles uh, that women perform that are just in a lot of people's minds. Yeah. Not, uh, sort of have this sexualized and pornified element to them. And I think they're just playing on that that idea. I think so. Because I think if she just came in, you know, she had her hair pulled back, no makeup on, you know, just like her blue scrubs. I don't think it would have, I don't think the effect of the whole, um, you know, thing behind the curtain would have been as effective. I think her being very you know beautiful and very well dressed and with makeup on and with the skimpy kind of nurse's uniform i think it really added to the whole scene i don't think it would have worked if she just came in you know looking normal yeah and i mean you know nurses typically you know they're they're scrubs and their their role is quite you know it's a caretaker role but it's very utilitarian it's what can i do to maximize the benefit to this patient there's no you know there's, there's a personal aspect to it and there's a caretaker aspect to it but it's it's definitely not this sort of like intimate sensual (laughs) <laughs> dynamic that uh, this yeah. has with her patient. I mean, her disposition might be one who's just always warm, even, you know, even mm, after yes. being a nurse and a lot of people would- Warm be- like the water in the sponge bath. Yeah. Um, you know, <laughs> after, after years as a nurse, you know, or as any sort of caretaker for people's health and well-being, you know, a lot of people get ground down, they become a bit jaded, they become a bit cold mm. and distant. Uh, this nurse is still very, very warm very, very uh, thoughtful and very soft and, and gentle and genuine, seemingly genuinely cares for her patients. But, yeah. You know, for, as a viewer, they're definitely uh, relying on that stereotype of a porno, you know, sexualized nurse. Absolutely. Because when I was in hospital for six weeks a few years ago, I didn't see any nurses that looked like her. So obviously they did, they did G it up for the scene, of course. Of course. <laughs> just, it's just funny. It's just very funny how they how they did that. Yeah. And it plays into the whole, you know, the, the sexual tension in the episode and the sexual tension that is working against the core four as they're trying not to masturbate. You know, this, mm. this sexy nurse coming along and giving sponge baths just builds up the tension and makes it harder for George to and the patient is hot as well, as hot yeah. as the nurse, which makes it worse. Yeah, it's it's, yeah. it's typical like hetero lesbian fantasy bullshit, but uh, it's it, mm. episode it, it works very well, and it's a funny addition. Funny addition as well, yeah. And uh, we only see the nurse twice, but uh, you know, considering the role that she had, she uh, she did the job. Yeah. What is the episode where uh, George is? There's another episode where. Oh, it's the outing. It's a later season four episode. This time it's two dudes. So it's like the male nurse who's like a, you know, a nice handsome looking nurse and he yeah. walks in and gives the man a sponge bath. Yeah. <laughs> That's a nice throwback to the contest. I think it's a few episodes later. Yeah. George is concerned that uh, he's turned on by the, the two male nurses. Yeah. I love how they brought that scene back, yeah, but in yeah. a different context. I love it. Yeah. No, well played and uh, well thought. Absolutely. That's all I had about the nurse. The last person I wanted to talk about, another unseen character, uh, is the naked woman across the street. Yes. So she has no credit because uh, she doesn't appear on screen. Don't know anything about her. Um, oh, actually, no, sorry. She does appear on screen uh, in the final scene where you see her fast asleep uh, holding onto Kramer. Yeah, but I couldn't get her acting credit, unfortunately. I looked everywhere, but I couldn't find who the actress was. I'm guessing probably like a body double or something like that. But no, she's she's uncredited. Couldn't find a thing. Usually there's names to these people, but no, nothing for her. Nothing for her. I would assume that she is a nudist. Yep. Or, or maybe she, the only other theory I had about her is that maybe she works in a very repressive and uh, highly stressful job where what she wears and who she is, is tightly managed, you know, maybe like a, you know, like a high level law firm, you know, where she has to dress yes. in a very conservative way and uh, act in a very, very conservative way. So a lot of who she is, is repressed. So when she gets home to sort of make up for that, she's like, you know what, I'm not going to wear any clothes. I'm just going to walk around and do everything naked. And, naked, uh, naked, and, naked. And, yeah. And, and be free. Exactly. <laughs> so, um, yeah. Yeah, she's either a nudist or someone who is nude at home in reaction to 
her normal life being quite repressive. Yeah, and I think she's probably moved into the building recently because obviously I'm sure Jerry or Kramer would have spotted her way yeah. back when, when they moved in. So I think she's probably recently moved buildings. I mean, I don't know if she moved, you know, into New York City. She's probably from New York, but now she probably just moved departments. And uh, yeah, the Jerry and Kramer spotted for the first time. She must yeah. have moved in a few days before. And they don't just spot on her. They keep uh, way too many tabs on her. Way too many tabs. Trying to find out her schedule. It's a bit, it's a bit yeah, it is a bit creepy. Yeah, a bit, uh, you know, I mean, if I spied a, an attractive naked lady across my apartment complex or across the road, you know, I would be a human and I'd at least have a look or check in occasionally, but um, I don't think I'd sit there and comment, you know, Kramer's commentating at one point. So, yeah. Um, yeah. And uh, obviously she's very, very charmed by Kramer. I mean, Kramer does have the Kavorka. He does. That's what I was thinking. The Kavorka got him over. I think if anyone else but, but Kramer knocked on her door and said, oh, hey, I'm a stranger to you and I live across the street, but I notice he'd be walking around the house naked. I think most people would go, piss off, you creep. Like, you know, mm. don't, don't look at me and don't knock on my door. But Kramer having the, the Kavorka and being incredibly charming and very successful with women, obviously the creepiness was put aside and uh, she she didn't care and uh, she liked him enough to sleep with him. That's right, yeah. And uh, they probably slept together a few times and then uh, probably got over it. <laughs> I think so, yeah. yeah. That's all I really had about her because, uh, like I said, there's, there's not much to go on. She likes me <laughs> no. and uh, she's charmed by Kramer. And she moved in recently to the apartment, hence why they just noticed her. Yep. Anyway, that's all the secondaries, I think. I think so. Uh, this has been a uh, bit of a longer episode, which is fantastic because it is the contest. Uh, we will be taking a break, though, and when we come back, we will. Uh, find out where the contest maybe if it's moved in our top 20 episodes uh, sorry our top episodes of all time and whether any of the secondary characters appear in our top 20 of all time so then I got a call this morning you know I was uh, chosen to go on the space shuttle we're going to Mars uh-huh have a good time I'm out Yeah, I'm out. I'm out of the contest. You're out? Yeah, yeah. Wow, that was fast. So, Stephen, out of 146 episodes and with our second re-gifted episode, which was the contest, which we have just done, where has the contest moved for you? Has it gone up for you or down? Because I think you had it in the 20s at the time when we recorded. Is that right? So uh, where, where is it these days? Yeah, look, I haven't uh, seen my top 20 in a while. They are on a list. Um, I don't have it in front of me, and I believe I did have it around 10 or 11, maybe 12, and it hasn't really moved. I still really like this episode. I still understand why it is considered the best episode by many, many people. There's nothing really weak. It's a fantastic concept. Um, it broke new ground not only for the show, but for TV in general. Pushed a lot of boundaries, uh, and I get it. But for me, just from a pure watching a TV show and sort of trying to cut through all the hype that is around the S episode and just enjoying it for what it is, I don't rate it as highly as other people. And uh, that's just my uh, subjective take on it. What about you? Fair enough, my friend. Well, uh, for me, it was number one when we did our 50th and it stays at number one. I think uh, I'm just echoing some sentiments I had back then. Uh, I feel like it's a terrific episode, very well written. The fact they didn't use the word masturbation despite it being the subject of the episode, I think that's incredible writing from Larry. Great director 
directing by Tom Sharones. And uh, I love how every, like the main four characters, they all had a stake in the contest and they tried everything to not cave and uh, many of them failed along the way. And uh, I think it's a really seminal episode. And I think if you were to introduce someone to Seinfeld, you'd probably give them this one. This would probably be one of the first ones to introduce them to. Probably not the first one because of its uh, very, you know, different way that it did the episode. But yeah, it's definitely a winner for me. And I think definitely the best Seinfeld episode ever. Fair enough. Fair enough. Do any of the secondaries appear in your top 20? No, but like last week, special mention to Marla. uh, And this is the last time we talk about her on the show. So yes. So thank you, Marla. Thank you, Jane, for the uh, wonderful memories of your two uh, two and a half episodes being in the finale as well. So thanks. Yeah. And uh, neither for me, none of the the secondaries appear in my top 20. Shout out to Marla. And uh, I do appreciate that. This being Estelle's first episode, she comes out all guns blazing and uh, she just gets better and better. Oh, yes. You're treating your body like an amusement park. Yeah, like amusement park. I love it. <laughs> anyway, that was But I Don't Want to Be a Secondary Character for another week. We hope you enjoyed it. Thank you so much. And uh, this is our second ever re-gifted episode. So we first did the Soup Nazi last year and this was the contest. And uh, we might be doing re-giftings of episodes between now and when we finish early next year, like some episodes we feel that, you know, probably could have done a bit better or need a bit of improvement. So uh, yeah, you'll be getting those as well as our other episodes that we have not done as yet and uh, Stephen we're going to do one of your uh, I think an episode that you really like a lot mate Uh, we're doing the raincoats parts one and two next week love it yeah, Morty. Yes. Uh, we got... Uh, Close Talker. We got Jack. Yep, fantastic episode. Close Talker as well. He's yep. in, Aaron. Talk a bit about him as well. Like we did we did a What's the Deal with him and the other talkers, but we'll uh, talk about him a bit more as well <laughs> in this episode. And uh, yes, really exciting. So you can, uh, if you want to send us an email to say g'day, bidwabaskpodcast at gmail.com. We are on socials. You can find us at B-I-D-W-B-A-S-C. And uh, we are on Patreon and PayPal as well. For monies and for Patreon, you do get bonus episodes episodes and bonus content and early access to this episode that's right and you do get access to Curbcast season 11 which we will be finishing up at the end of the year and uh, we do have the big seinfeld group on facebook seinfeldisms check that out we're gonna soon be up to 100,000 members and i do have quite a few plans coming up for that so uh yeah type seinfeldisms into facebook and check it out and uh thank you so much for our current sponsors of seinfeldisms pop chart check out the deal uh, and we do have some other cool sponsors coming on board and uh, a whole bunch of fantastic things happening Indeed. And thanks also to our Patreon subscribers as of recording, Holly, Nikia, Neil, and Jeff. Forgot to mention that before, so thanks. Yep. And uh, thank you to you, our listeners. We will see you next week for the Raincoats. Yes, my name is Ivan. I'm Stephen. We'll catch you then. (laughs) 